Hi, this is Sarah Coleman coming um, to you again from Beyond the Wall. I am interviewing Jonathan Sharp today. And Jonathan, uh, where are you lo uh, currently located? I'm calling from Southern Maryland Pre-Release Unit. And if you could just tell us um, what your original charge was, um, your sentence, and just where you are with it now. And you'll be released in a couple of days? Yep. Awesome. So you did five and a half years off the um, eight-year sentence? Yeah, off the eight-year sentence. I did a total of five and a half, and that's with good time and earned time from uh, work credit. Okay. And if you don't mind, if you could tell us um, a little bit about your crime. Uh, about? About what happened? Oh. The assault, uh-huh. Oh, about what happened? Okay, um, the original charge stems from a nasty divorce I was in the middle of, and uh, we were still arguing over custody way after the divorce um, was finalized. Um, we've been arguing for about six months, and right before Christmas in 2012, um, I was called by the mediator to go to a meeting. And at the meeting, I was told that I wasn't going to be able to have my kids that December uh, for Christmas. You know, I'd have them like one day as opposed to the week I was supposed to be, be getting with the new, uh, I guess, uh, custody agreement we had just dealt with the previous month. Mm -hmm. um, Can I have you speak day, up just a little bit more? I'm sorry. Sure. Okay. Um, during that meeting, uh, I guess I just kind of got frustrated with everything and kind of lost it. I snapped and attacked my ex-wife and uh, hit her in the face a couple times and knocked her unconscious and uh, caused her uh, to get some stitches on her eyebrow. Um, and right after it happened, you know, I was apprehended by the police and put in jail uh, in Annapolis. Okay. From there, I mean, that was my first real encounter with the criminal justice system, and from there, it was just, you know, one thing after another that kind of led me to believe that it's not as fair as, I, as, as fair as I thought it was, you know, growing up and as an adult. Okay. So was this your first um, domestic violence? Was this the first time it had gotten physical? Yeah, this, this is the first time ever. Um, we'd gone through some marriage counseling and stuff before, but this was the first actual, like, physical violence. Uh, and we hadn't even been married. I mean, we were divorced at this point. So oh, wow. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't even anything that made sense. And, you know, it was because of the situation I was put in by, you know, having to go to this mediator and argue about custody. I had to, you know, pay for the privilege to argue with my ex-wife. And it wasn't getting resolved after six months. For the first two months, we argued about like, what school they would go to. And then the last four months, it was which holidays we would get, how much time, and 
stuff like that. And really, I mean, there was no resolution in sight because every time we came up with something, her lawyer would uh, disapprove it. And so then we'd have to start all over again. And in the end, the uh, mediator was the one making all the money off of it and the lawyer. And, you know, I wound up here. So let me ask you, um, prior to um, getting charged with domestic violence, uh, what, what did you do? What type of... Uh... I was, I, I was, a, I was a consultant with a company called Booz Allen Hamilton, and I was a government contractor uh, over at Fort Meade with a top-secret clearance. Wow. And so what was it, uh, what was it like... Um, going from that and and into um, a Maryland state prison system. It, it was a wake up call. I mean, it was it was nothing you expect. It's nothing you see on TV, and you know it doesn't doesn't really prepare you for it. I mean, some stuff. You know, it's not going to be a nice place. You know, obviously the staff isn't there to help you, and reform is what's on their mind. They're they're basically just working a job. It's not a good job either because they've got to deal with a bunch of people who don't like them. Um, I mean, I had a bad experience almost from like the first week I was in the state prison system. Oh yeah, and could you um, explain a little? This is this is actually how I got to meet. This is how I got to meet uh, uh, John. Could you explain a little bit about um, what what happened there? I was flagged as a gang member for no apparent reason, and once that happens, you get treated a whole lot differently. So I was, you know, moved from that prison that I was at in Jessup. I was moved out to the Eastern Shore. I was put on a wing where I'm only housed with other gang members, and you just get treated differently. I mean, I had to share a cell with another gang member, and of course, not being in the gang, a little funny, and then I, you know, had to kind of deal with a whole different side of the prison system that I wouldn't have gotten myself into, even if I had a chance. It was, you know, nobody joins a prison gang at 38, their first time in prison. It's you're, you're, I'm losing you. You're, you're, you're fading out like really bad. I'm so sorry. Um, what were you saying about the gang? About the uh, gang? Go ahead again a little bit. I'm sorry. So nobody, I guess, nobody I've ever met, you know, goes to prison for their first time at 38 and joins a prison gang. It just doesn't happen. So it, it's kind of, it was just, it was, it was another thing I had to deal with. You know, besides the fact that lost contact with my children and I lost my job and lost everything I owned. Now I have to deal with proving that I'm not a gang member and, you know, proving a negative is a really hard thing to do. Yeah, and and for I mean, this is actually how uh, John and I um, came to know um, each other because... um, Shortly, I, I guess you were in there like a month, right? I mean, I, I kind of got to know you right as soon as you yeah. <laughs> went through the prison system. Um, he, I, uh, go ahead. I, I, I found your card in the library uh, at ECI, uh, Eastern Correctional Institute on the east side. And 
you know, I saw the card, and I guess I had my sister call you and kind of explain what was going on. And from then on, that was what, almost five years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like I did the time with you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. John is like my brother from another mother. I'm trying to tell you. It was, I think, but I think we did a, a great job together. What do you think? Right. So, I mean, over the next two years after that first phone call, it took us all of that two years to prove I was the gang member. And it involved, you know, the, the uh, what is it, administrative remedy procedure, the inmate grievance office all the way up to I had to I had to appear before an administrative law judge and plead my case, you know, I didn't have money for lawyers at that point, so I had to be my own lawyer and put a bunch of different correctional officers on the stand who weren't gonna answer any of my questions anyway because there's nothing there to compel them to do that. <laughs> so based on the fact that I had no real history of gang activity and uh, Department of Corrections had no actual proof that I was in a gang. The judge wrote a decision and basically said there's no way I should be liked as a gang member and all that needed to come off. And um, that only took two years. Yeah. <laughs> it kept me pretty busy. No, it was it was an utter nightmare. Um, I, I believe that's where <laughs> that's where uh, me and the administration kind of got off with 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 each other. Cause yeah, it was it was an definitely an uphill battle. But you know, um, I was happy to be able, you know, what I'm saying, to assist you in that. So let me ask you: um, Did anyone? Was there anyone in particular um, in prison um, that actually that that made an um, impact on you while you were in there? Um, yeah, when when I finally got back to Jessup, I was at Maryland Correctional Institute, Jessup, MCIJ, and once I got there, I got settled down and I got a job. I started I started meeting uh, some of the lifers that were there, and they uh, against I guess all intuition are usually kind of the best people to know when you get to a prison. Uh, they're, they're kind of like the royalty of prison because they've been there so long. You know, someone who's been in the same place for 25 years, usually been there longer than most of the staff. So they've seen everything, they know everybody. You know, they're they're kind of settled and, you know, they, they have an outlook on life that helps other people get through it. Um, you know, like the, the, the lifers just are the most helpful people, especially the ones that are still active in programs and, you know, haven't kind of given up. You know, they're still fighting for parole, they're still fighting their cases after 20 years, and they still have that bit of hope that they get them through the day. So what is the, um, do, do they, see, but do they seem hopeful or, or have someone, some of them resolved to, you know, this, we're going to die here or, or, or do I mean, do they still have that glimmer of hope or is it, is it kind of mixed? It's, it's, it's different for every one of them. Some do and some don't. I mean, one of my, one of my coworkers was 70, 72 years old with a heart condition and, you know, waiting to hear from the parole board when he could have his next hearing. He'd already been locked up about 30 years. So he's just there, you know, waiting for a chance. I don't, you know, what, 
I don't know what type of threat a 72-year-old is in society, but I mean, he's basically, you know, just waiting to die at that point. And he still has that little bit of hope that maybe he might get, like, a medical parole or he might get actual parole. But in Maryland, it doesn't really happen, so it's not a good hope. Um, some of the other guys, you know, doing 25 years, stay in programs, they stay in uh, college courses, they, they stay busy, and they kind of keep keep themselves hopeful, I guess, helping other people. So a lot of them are really active in programs, a lot of them uh, have been on, like, the Scared Straight TV shows. There was a, an episode or two that came out of that same jail that I was at, um, and I mean, it's funny to watch them try and be like real scary, serious prisoners because they're really a bunch of nice guys you'll ever meet. It's it's just weird seeing them stuck someplace and not getting any type of rhythm or anything from the parole commission. Like, you know, these are, these are guys that basically turn their lives around. They, they went into prison, you know, stupid kids, and now they're, you know, 40 and 50-year-old men just want a chance in a normal life and no matter what they do they keep getting told you know see us in four years see us in five years see us in 12 years um it doesn't make any sense because they just say keep doing what you're doing you know i've already done everything what else can i do so they get put on this treadmill of seeing a parole board that's never going to do anything for them because nobody wants to take a risk on someone even though they've obviously done everything they could do to make themselves better. Um, a lot of them, to me, are better people than a lot of people not locked up. So what will you do with this, John? Uh, what, what what will you do with this information, um, with what you've seen, and, and now that you're about to um, go home, um, what will you do with this? really sure. I, I know I have to do something, but I'm not sure what it is. Um, it's, it's, you know, maybe testifying in front of some state, you know, Senate committee or, you know, keeping a blog or helping the guys still inside, you know, get paperwork or, you know, law help or something like that. I think a, a lot of it a lot of it's going to be, you know, non-standard stuff. They don't have access to social media, so you kind of have to force the issue for them on social media. Like, one of the things I used to joke about doing with the lifers group was having, like, each guy send in a picture, you know, and then make, like, a calendar of people who aren't a threat to the society anymore. You know, a bunch of 60 and 70-year-old men with canes and, you know, every other type of, you know, ailment that goes with being that elderly and just, you know, put out a calendar of, like, people who probably should have got parole. <laughs> and, you know, just tell that to raise money for them or the legal fund or something. Absolutely. Like, That's actually a great idea. <laughs> right, and it's, it's, it's funny, but it's not funny. Because Absolutely. <laughs> and it's just, you want, you want, that 
know, don't typically care about stuff like this to take a look at it and go, huh, that guy is 70 years old. He looks like my papa. What the hell is he doing in prison? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who's worried about that guy getting on the street? And, I mean, it, it used to be, and this is just what the lifers tell me, it used to be the lifers did like 22 years. And then they get parole as long as they, you know, kind of stayed out of trouble and did what they had to do in prison. Like, it, it was a, a chance at rehabilitation. And I don't think anybody has that chance just not anything anyone's doing. It's not the parole people, because I know a couple of guys have gotten out on a, a case called the Unger case uh, from the 80s. Everyone who had a jury trial basically had to do another trial over again. And the different counties dealt with it differently, but some of the lifers got out because they just made a deal with them. You know, they said, all right, we'll let you out now if we don't have to take you back to trial. Of course, everybody's going to jump at that, so that's how they did it. Um, and then one guy who had like 40-something years, and he got pardoned by the governor. You know, and that was basically a workaround because they wouldn't give him parole, so they had to come up with a way to get him out of prison because there wasn't any reason to keep him in prison anymore. I guess he had a lot of people working for him, you know, making sure that happened, but still, it shouldn't have to go that way like you shouldn't have to you shouldn't have to work around your own system just to do the right thing that's great you're absolutely right and i think that we have to we have an obligation to become more involved too and and actually you, you know what i'm saying and having these politicians actually work for you know what i mean for for not just some um but for all the people you you understand because i i feel that everybody right. knows somebody that's incarcerated, <laughs> you know, and it's like they get in there and, you know, I, I don't see that, that, you know, they're really getting any type of help. You know, they're, they're putting a band aid, you know, on the problem, but, but no one's really getting any, any help. Right. And, uh, a lot of it, I mean, like there's a lot of criminal justice reform in the air right now. And, you know, the political side of it is great. And that, you know, it might get you votes, it might do something, but it's the actual criminal justice system that's messed up. Like, that's the most messed up thing about it. And even, you know, the recent Maryland law, the Justice, Justice Reinvestment Act, allowed a bunch of nonviolent drug offenders to get a rehearing on their sentence. You know, if they had mandatory minimums and everything, it kind of gave them a second chance give them a little bit of help or maybe reduce their sentence to something more reasonable. And a couple of the guys I've talked to here, you know, they submitted that paperwork in October. They still haven't gotten a court date. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the system's not set up to actually enact the reform that the politicians did. So, you know, I, I put in put in this case in October and I still don't have a court date. Really, all you gotta do is take a look at it and say, "Yeah, you're keeping the same sentence," or "No, we're gonna let you out," you know, a couple of years or a couple of months early. Um, you know, my own interaction with the parole board has been bizarre and frustrating, and it, it really, you know, left me wondering what the point was. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> really didn't do anything they were supposed to and actually all they did was kind of confuse the issue 
Yeah. So how do we fix this, John? How do we fix this? Um, we have to do something, but it, it, it's only going to get fixed if the people who are part of the system want to fix it. So you've got to convince the judges, the prosecutors, and the defense lawyers that what they've been doing what they trained for their whole lives is actually a completely screwed up system that doesn't do anyone any good. Um, there isn't a whole lot of chance of anyone doing that because I mean, that's, that's their system. That's how they see it. That's how they think it should be. Um, other countries do different stuff. You know, like Portugal got rid of all drug crime. They basically said, you know, doing drugs is a a medical issue, not a criminal issue. And so it took them 10 years, but they basically, you know, emptied out their prisons, put everyone in rehab, and stopped putting people in jail. And wow. if they wanted to do drugs, they, they gave them the drugs, so they didn't have to go steal something to buy the drugs. So Damn, everybody should head to Portugal. <laughs> right. Right. I bet they're about to get an right. influx of people. <laughs> And then they haven't went back in, which I think is just utter bullshit, um, you know, because you've got people serving 30, 40 and 50 federal years, you know, over a marijuana charge. And, and <laughs> you you understand. And it's just, you know, it's it's disgusting. I mean, it, it really, really is. Um, we 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 definitely, you know, we have an obligation. And um, I, I told you from the beginning, you know, I feel like you I mean, other than, you know, kicking your wife's backside, I'm not minimizing that, but, you know, I feel like you were placed there for a purpose. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Like, you know, someone like you, um, probably, you know, I mean, these, these paths, you know, would have never crossed. You, you understand what I'm saying? And it's almost like, um, you know, you do have an obligation now, you know, that, that was me when I went in volunteering, you know, seven, eight years ago, it, it totally changed my life. Like, you know, I have been committed to this, you know, since then. I couldn't walk away from it. You understand? So. And, I mean, I really wish I hadn't done what I did. I, you know, I didn't want to hurt her. I didn't wake up that day thinking, oh, I want to hurt my ex-wife. And if I could take it back, I would. You know, I lost a lot of stuff. I lost you know, contact with my two younger children. I lost five years of my life. I lost, you know, retirement and all this stuff, you know, paying for lawyers. And, you know, I didn't even get what I wanted in my plea deal. And so it, it, it has a pretty high cost. So 
know, hopefully I can do something with the experience. I think you're going to kick ass, John. I mean, I, I really, you know what I'm saying? I really do. Um, it, it, you know, it's just, it was a pleasure. You know what I mean? Teaming up with you. You were fun to watch. <laughs> you know what I mean? You definitely frustrated the hell out of the system. Um, I don't even know why you're still there. I thought they would have bought you a ticket. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I didn't. I didn't let people, you know, see me that way. And I used to have uh, a cellmate that would say, like, "You know, you're in prison, right?" <laughs> like, like I had, like I had a problem with the reality of it. I just wouldn't accept the mindset of your average prisoner. Like, I'm just gonna sit here and do my time and stay out of trouble, or you know, some guys, some guys, you know, hang out the whole five years and get high or whatever. It's whatever, however they can do the time. Some people sleep. 12 hours a day. Um, you know, some guys play cards, but I had to do something, and everything I saw that I didn't like that affected me, I kind of went after the administration for. You know, I wrote stuff up, and I pointed stuff out. You know, I, I was a pain in the ass most places I went. Um, I tried to do fundraisers for the veterans group, Jessup, and got, that got me put out of jail there. Um, <laughs> Wow. It, it really, it, it really is just, you know, I guess it gave me something to do. It kept me busy, but it didn't make a whole lot of friends on the administration side. Yeah. You know, I, I have, I have the facility administrator here who is supposed to hold a monthly meeting with the dorm reps, you know, to kind of take care of the stuff everybody has an issue with. And I've been a dorm rep for two months. Of those two months, she has not held that meeting because she doesn't want to deal with it. And, you know, some of the other officers, like, laugh. You have 60 seconds remaining. Uh, sorry, you want to kill it there? Nope. <laughs> but, um, so so you, you gave her, I mean, she didn't want to deal with you? No, no, I, like, I had to miss work and everything for these meetings, and both times it didn't happen, and she didn't even, like, have the courtesy to tell me it wasn't happening, so. Wow. That just meant you did your job. Well, listen, John, I, I could talk to you all day. Um, I'm sorry that we ran out of time, but I thank you for this interview. And um, I'm going to see if I can save it this time. Okay. Um, when you post it, I guess just don't link it to my name. You can post it if you want on like Facebook or whatever. Hi, this is Sarah Coleman. I am interviewing Mr. Uh, Raymond Alderson. Um, Mr. Ray, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, background. Uh, Mr. Ray is um, probably my, my favorite client <laughs> so far. Um, I actually, I stopped doing my advocacy work and he was one of the main reasons um, that I came back um, because I wanted to be able to help Mr. Ray tell his story first and foremost and then um, I wanted to, you know, if, if there's ever a person that, that I felt like, you know, was redeemed and was worthy of a second chance um, is Mr. Ray. I won't try to minimize, uh, 
you know, what he was charged with. Um, he actually has a first degree murder. Um, he murdered his, uh, daughter's mother. Um, I, my own sister was murdered. Um, my eldest sister was murdered. Um, so I certainly, you know, um, I had a son murdered and I had a brother murdered. So, um, I won't minimize what he's done. Um, but as you hear his story, you know, hopefully you guys will feel the same way that I feel. So without further ado, um, Mr. Ray, how are you doing today, sir? Good, Ms. and thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak today. You're welcome. Um, so could you tell us briefly uh, what you were charged with now? Yes, I'm serving a first-degree murder, life plus 15 for the handgun, for the uh, murder that I committed back in 1983. My victim was named Sandra K. Colbert, who is the mother of my daughter, And, and who was that person? What, what, um, what, did, what did you come with? What was, what was the conclusion? Who was the person that made you commit that crime? Yeah, I, I understand. I'm saying, so what did you, what was your conclusion? Why, why do you think that, that you murdered her? I murdered her because I, at that time, 
time, I, I think I was killing all the relationships that I had. I was, uh, and I say that because uh, from my mother to all the different relationships that I had, at the age of 18 months old, uh, I was taken away from my mother. She was uh, considered an alcoholic, a drug addict, and a prostitute. And I was undernourished, malnutrition. So this organization called Catholic Charity took me put me in the orphanage called St. Vincent. At the age of 18 months old, I had several other siblings. We all had the same mother, but different fathers. They are Spanish-related, and I am uh, Spanish, and my mother's Spanish, my father's Puerto Rican truck driver. So I was, once again, outcast of me from my own family. So I stayed in the first orphanage uh, for the first 10 years. And it, like I said, it was very difficult. We're talking about 1957. 1997 let me stop you right there so you were actually you were you had already um, begun to start going out into the community yes ma'am I was uh, you went to, went to Glenn Burney got my ID 
Bell and I deal get ready to go to the half house. You do you do four uh, uh, working leads, but you go to uh, the half house for orientation. You go to Alicus City for vocational rehab. Uh, once you Glenn Birdie get my ID, Bell and ID, and the last year that went to a shopping mall. Okay. So you were you were leaving you were leaving the prison and and for you you those of you that don't know um um back in what year was that when the the person um there was a lifer that was out there um that took um that murdered someone they they had lifers um because back then life didn't mean life so lifers back then were actually allowed back into the community they had um started families. Um, they had jobs. Everyone was doing well. One lifer um, took the life of, of a woman or, or something or his, his wife or his girlfriend or something. And Paris Glendening back then um, rounded up all the lifers and he told them, you know, come back in. He was going to straighten it out. And it was a political move. And um, once he got the lifers off the street and put them back in prison, that's when he, you know, he changed the law, meaning that life in Maryland meant life. Um, so Mr. Ray was one of those that was affected by this. And this was back in what year? 1997. 1997. And since then, you've been to court, um, how many times, um, trying to, um, get, get, um, you know, some rhythm on your, on your case? Have you um, had any contact with your daughter? Um, who, so, first of all, who raised your daughter, Mr. Ray?
back in Oklahoma City. Okay. Uh, from day one. Yeah. So have you had any contact with your uh your daughter? Yes. Uh when I went up for sadness in one of the years in nineteen ninety uh five, first time I went for status, the board stopped me from riding my daughter. I was riding her, sending the cards, birthday cards, Christmas thinking of her. From day one I was sending the cards. They told me I had to stop writing because the victim's family uh, did not want me to write, have any contact with my daughter. At this time, it was devastating to me to do that. But the same token, I realized that uh, I was opening up old wounds. They said, how dare you write letters to my house? So um, in 1987, uh, Candace contacted here at Protection that she wanted to uh, start a relationship with me. I was extremely thankful. Uh, I was blessed. We talked on the phone several times. Then she finally came up to visit me for the first time. And what was that um, conversation like when, when she when she saw you? Was she angry? I mean, or how, how was she when she first know, saw you? Uh, when I walked in the venue, I didn't know she was coming. I thought my friend was coming. And I turned around and looked, and Candace come running. She was hiding. She back hiding. Grabbed arms, we started crying. Both started crying. Everybody in the area started clapping. It was it was a good feeling. I know I've been called a lot of things, but never been called dad. Mm. It, it was one of probably the best days of my life. Uh, Candace said, "Dad, I don't like what you did. You're my only parent I have, and I want to start a relationship with you." I was thankful for that. Uh, it's been an off and on relationship because she still. I, I, I don't think she's really completely healed I guess I'll just keep this going, please. Um, he's excused himself, but um, I hope you guys can see um, in Mr. Ray. Um, he's harmless. He's been in there for 35 years. Um, you know, he snapped. Um, he shouldn't have. Um, it should have never been a first degree murder because it was crime of passion, first and foremost. Um, his attorney at the time. Um, She's now a judge, and um, she's actually, um, I believe, tr you know, followed him, and she's tried to offer some assistance. Her hands are tied. She was fresh out of um, law school, and um, I guess, you know, she didn't know the difference between the first and the second degree. Um, you know, it wasn't premeditated. Um, they were arguing. You know, he kind of snapped, and um, that was how he ended up, um, you know, shooting her and stuff, and as a result, you know, of her, you know, I, I won't say incompetence, because um, I'm sure she probably did the best that she could, but as um, a result of her, you know, not, you know, knowing, 
you know, he ended up with this life sentence when he should have probably already been home. Um, I don't know what this says about us as a society. Uh, Mr. Ray has been in prison for 30, 35 years. He has never had one infraction. Um, he's had everyone from his doctors to the warden. Um, everybody has appealed, you know, for his release. Um, and I will not stop until, um, you know, he is released. I know Angela also Brooks, um, the state's attorney in, um, in Washington, uh, in Prince George's County, um, you know, had written him a rather harsh letter, you know, um, saying that he deserved, you know, the crime, um, the, the, the time fits the crime. Um, like I said, I don't know what that says about us as a, as a society that, um, you know, he could be in there all this time. You know, prison is supposed to be about rehabilitation. Um, if not Mr. Ray, then who? <laughs> you understand? And um, I can say this. Um, I, my son was murdered. My brother was murdered. My sister was murdered. Um, I forgave the young man that murdered my son. You understand? Because for me, um, him being in prison, um, you know, wasn't going to bring my son back. Um, so, you know, I didn't want to stay stuck in, in being angry and stuff. And I just feel like, you know, the, the courts needs to listen, um, you know, to more people than themselves. Um, Mr. Ray is harmless <laughs> now. You, you understand what I'm saying? And I, and I've, I, and I feel he was harmless then. I just, I feel like he snapped. Um, God knows probably if I had a gun around every time I got mad, there'd be a lot of people, um, that wouldn't be here anymore. Um, so with that being said, Mr. Ray, are you back? Okay, so we have to just wrap this interview up. Um, is there anything um, else that you wanted to add or anything or, you know, anything about... I, I don't like to toot my horn, but, you know, I, I am, you know, I'm, I'm trying to um, get as much attention. Um, you know, this platform is not about me. This platform is for you all. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to garner as much support as I can. Um, to get those of you, I, I certainly feel, you know, that there is a place for prisons, um, you know, that, you know, some people need to be locked up. You're not one of them. I, I feel like you've more than um, served your time. So is there anything else that you would like to conclude? Anything else you'd like to say? Speak up a little bit. I'm sorry.
embedded themselves, and there's a lot of good people in, in behind these walls that need to take a chance, and I'm so thankful for you for believing in me and trying to help me there. You just know how blessed I am, thankful I am for that, and thank you very much. Oh, you're so welcome. I love you, Mr. Ray. I, I honestly do. And, you know, if 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 you were the last thing that I did, you understand, on this earth, um, then I will feel that I that I did my job. Um, you're worthy. You are you're worthy of a second chance. I believe in you. Um, and I, I will see this through. You'll see we will have an interview of you on the other side of those walls. You understand? And, and and we will talk again. So um, I love you. God bless you. And, you know, our fight continues. Okay. And thank you. And vice versa. I love you too, Sarah. And I'll uh, call you sometime later on, talk to you later on. Thank you very much. You're so welcome. Let, let me make sure I, I, I keep this recording. Hold on one second.